everyone for getting involved and doing things. You can start recording now. Uh, When your life is shaped by the gospel, it bears fruit. Last week, we went through all the qualifications of leaders as we looked at the goals for all of us whose lives are shaped by the gospel and we saw what some of that fruit is. And today we're going to look at the call to servanthood as we read, as we've read in from 1 uh, Timothy chapter 4. Ultimately, what the gospel boils down to is those who have been saved by the work of Christ choose to become servants of Christ so that we might reach others with the gospel of Christ who then might be saved. Our salvation is not just for ourselves, but it is for God's plan of salvation for the world. And so that is why we read in uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, if you put these things in practice, uh, sorry, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be good servants of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So you remember earlier in Timothy, Paul raises the issue of false teachers. And this is another point about that. Because Good servants of Christ are not false teachers. In fact, the opposite. They hold good doctrine. And Paul encourages Timothy to persevere because good servants of Christ are trained in the Scriptures and in good doctrine and then share that knowledge of the truth with their brothers and sisters in Christ as Timothy was. In fact, the word Paul uses speaks more of being nourished by the truths of faith contained in the Bible. This suggests that it's not one outstanding banquet, no, not one big meal that you eat, nor is it uh, uh, an occasional feast, but a regular diet, every day feeding on the Word of God. Who here has had something to drink this morning? Who here has had something to eat this morning? Not necessarily everyone, some people miss your breakfast, I know, you know, whatever. Uh, That's how often you should be doing the, the whole immersing yourself, being nourished by the Word of God as much as you eat, you know, or even more sometimes, you know. Uh, a good servant is nourished by the Word of God. A.W. Tozer said, The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and centre of their hearts. A lovely sentiment that is. But Paul returns to this issue of false teachers in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, where he explains that some people will leave the faith (coughs) because they have been deceived by false teachers. And uh, he, these false teachers are, are things he calls, if you look at, at the passage, he calls them deceitful spirits and teaching of demons and through insincerity of liars. It's most likely that although these false teachers professed Christianity, called themselves Christians, they weren't ever genuinely saved and weren't shaped by the gospel and they were led astray. And it's really important to hold to good doctrine. It is important, but why? 
Well, it's because the stakes are high. See, we're talking about the eternal salvation of souls. That's why good doctrine matters. That's why it is important that we teach and uphold the truth. Paul goes on to give a few examples of errors that were leading people astray. Reading from verse 3, Paul's talking about false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, does this sound familiar to you? Does any of that sound familiar? Where does it sound familiar to you from? Everywhere. Don't do this because, you know, it's whatever. Okay, right? So, so this, this false teaching, it was to gauge holiness by what is denied or given up. How holy you are is by how much you stop doing this, stop eating that, stop participating in this or that. And that is called asceticism. Lovely word, asceticism. Spelling it's even weirder. Um, but that's the teaching that abstinence from physical things is essential for spiritual purity. It sounds very much like religion. You earn holiness through what you deny yourself. And the two examples given were marriage and food. And it's so opposed to the gospel and grace of Jesus. You can't earn holiness... See, when we accepted the gospel of Christ, we were made holy by God in that instance. It's not earnable. Now, if we look at our friends in the Catholic Church, whose priests are forbidden to marry, it would seem that they've missed this teaching on the, from this passage entirely. And then you look at their teaching on penance, earning holiness and God's favour, you can clearly see how they've been deceived. Marriage has been given to us as a gift from God. It is not to be rejected thinking that you're more holy if you don't get married. And the same with food. And this example is closely linked with the Jewish roots of our faith who hold to unclean and clean animals. Now, this is from a time where God actually gave an instruction to the Jewish people. You can eat these animals because they're clean and you can't eat these animals because they're unclean. But then came visions from heaven for the apostles. So if we think of the distinctions of, of unclean and clean animals from Jewish culture, they've all been done away with for believers of Christ. Um, you know, the vision on the rooftop and Paul's teaching support that. And verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. Receive it from God with thanksgiving. Marriage. Receive it from God with thanksgiving, for it is good. Bacon. Receive it from God... With thanksgiving, for it is good. You can insert whatever you like, pretty much. There. Sorry? Oh, you don't like American bacon. I prefer the Canadian with the maple syrup. Mm, that's good, really good. See, when we thank God for his good gifts, 
and, and we don't treat them as our rights, we remember that they come from him. So this verse isn't saying you've got to say grace before you eat every meal, you know, make sure you're thankful before every meal. No, but it, that's a great attitude to have though, isn't it? You know, however, when, when rules are made about things that God has not made, so when we make rules that God hasn't, and then if an expectation then is placed upon Christians to keep those rules as a sign of holiness or godliness, that is empty religion, slavery, legalism, false teaching, and it distracts from us being servants of Christ. Now you might say, hang on Aaron, there's some really healthy boundaries that if we use them, we can prevent from falling into temptation and sin. And that's great that the Holy Spirit has guided you to put that in place, to put in place healthy boundaries for yourself so that you avoid temptation and sin. So I have zero willpower when it comes to donuts, right? If I've taught you about donuts, you'll know why. Um, so if there's donuts around me, I'll just eat them. So a healthy boundary is only buy them when I want to eat them. Don't just have a supply of donuts there all the time, right? Because then I'll look even more like a donut, right? Now, those are healthy boundaries. But if I said, no one in our church can buy donuts, right? That's legalism. That's a boundary that I place in myself for health reasons, right? If I then place that on anybody else, I've become a false teacher, right? And I'm leading you astray. So the moment you expect anyone else to adhere to those boundaries that the Holy Spirit has worked on your heart to put in place to prevent your, you from temptation and you from sin, whenever you place that on somebody else, you have stepped into very murky territory. And that's the moment you step into legalism and are on the verge of false teaching. Now, another example is I don't have a problem with alcohol. It helps that I don't actually find much to my liking. And so I can have alcohol in my, house, in my house and it will sit there for ages. You know, I've got, I got given a bottle of whiskey just before we moved to Wangaratta that's still there unopened and it's nearly four years later. But there are some people who can't handle that temptation and so it's better for them that they don't keep alcohol in the house. Last week we went through the problems with alcohol and it is a touchy subject for some because of history, problems and battles and Christians should never get drunk right? That's clear from the scriptures. And so if you have a problem with alcohol, please seek help. Set healthy boundaries for yourself and seek accountability. But if we were to make a rule to determine that alcohol is bad, and so Christians should not drink at all ever, then we've become false teachers according to this passage and other passages where Paul actually instructs to drink wine for the health of your gut, etc. Um, we've become legalistic and we've just made empty religion. Last week we covered addiction. If we are addicted to anything, turn to that substance when it gets tough or we get stressed or we need that substance to relax or, or to end the day, that's an unhealthy reliance upon a substance. We need to fix that, right? And that's our personal battle to fight. But don't fight it alone. Seek help. You know, we're a community of believers that want the best for each one, each, each other. 
So seek help. Set healthy boundaries for yourself and seek accountability. Find a friend who you, you, know, you might be able to confide in and might keep you accountable. Don't let your reliance upon a substance prevent you from being a servant of Christ. And we all have our battles, right? So just because some people might be more socially acceptable than others doesn't mean we don't have battles. We all have them. Verse 7, Paul continues on instruction for servants, for good servants. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. Basically, don't get distracted down the rabbit holes of the fables of false teachers. Keep the main thing the main thing. Instead of becoming embroiled in refuting silly myths, train in godliness. And this requires rigorous self-discipline. By allowing um, normal marriages and the eating of all kinds of food, Paul wasn't advocating undisciplined Christian living, open slather on everything, right? Good servants should direct our discipline at the development of spiritual more than physical strength. You know, physical self-discipline, what, what Paul refers to as bodily training, it has a very limited value compared with spiritual self-discipline or godliness. Spiritual self-discipline results in both present and future improvements. So if you're regularly at the gym, but don't spend as much time in the Word, what's of greater value to you? See, it's not a decision of good versus bad, it's a decision between good and better. If you spend more time running, cycling, doing weights, on the cross trainer, in an exercise class or any other physical training, yet you, you neglect spiritual training... Maybe your priorities need to change. Now, if you make good use of your time when training, listening to teaching, like sermons, podcasts, those sorts of things, I love going for a walk and having my podcast in and listening to it. I love working in the garden and I always have podcasts in and I listen to it. So I'm doing physical work, but also I'm doing spiritual work, right? Double benefit, right? But if you're only doing one and not the other and it is weighted more towards you know, making your body look good rather than improving your spiritual diet, your spiritual health, then maybe those priorities might need to change. Make sure you are focused on what is of greater importance, spiritual training over physical training. And Psalm 28 verse 1 does say, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. So there's that as well, just, you know, yeah. Um, but, but, but let's put balance back in, right? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and so we should look after them. Paul did say physical training is of some value. So uh, I'm not like anti-health here, right? But I'm just saying our priorities should be to honour and glorify God first in all things. So it's for godliness that we serve as good servants uh, and that we should labour and strive and discipline ourselves to develop predominantly. The incentive for this striving towards godliness is that we look forward to a genuine hope beyond this life. 
Charles Barclay once said, the greatness of the goal makes the toil of the struggle worthwhile. The greatness of the goal makes the toil of the struggle worthwhile. And that hope rests in the living God who is the saviour of all mankind. He has provided salvation that is available to everyone. And he is the saviour of us as believers who has accepted his provision of eternal salvation. And so in this passage, we see that Paul encourages his readers to concentrate on the basics. Steady nourishment from the word of God, pursuit of the godly life in the spirit, and priority of the mission of mission as good servants. And Paul charged Timothy to insist regularly on these things that he'd just been saying and to teach them to the Ephesians. In verse 11, he actually says, command and teach these things. That's the entirety of, of verse 11, command and teach these things. And in fact, it's better translated, continue teaching these things. It's not teach them once and then move on. It's continue teaching these things. Continue teaching how to live lives shaped by the gospel. And then Paul encourages Timothy to model what it means as a good servant. He instructs Timothy, let no one despise you uh, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That word youth describes someone up to the age of 40. So I just sneak in as youth, according to Paul. Happy days. I'm still in youth. Woohoo! Actually, I'm going to be starting youth group again soon. Like, just take me back 20 years um, when I used to do that every Friday night again. Uh, great. I'm really excited about it. Um, but as, as a comparatively young man, Timothy, he may have felt reluctant to instruct the elders in the Ephesian congregation who were probably older than he was. Most people regarded older people with great respect in his culture. But Paul promised that no one in the church would discredit Timothy's teaching ministry if he backed it up with a godly lifestyle, a lifestyle shaped by the gospel. In his words, as well as his actions, by his love for people and his trust for God, by his moral purity, he should provide an example of godliness and of being a good servant. You know, I've always taken great counsel in these words to Timothy for my own ministry and how I conduct myself, but really, all of us should listen to this counsel. Uh, if we're setting example for others in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, then we shouldn't let anyone look down on us or despise us for any reason. Paul's instruction is cleared for those who are under 40, but the principle applies to us all. It's not just for those who are young. And then Paul gives some practical instructions on the outward-focused aspects of his ministry as well. Until I come, because Paul wanted to come to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And three duties were crucial. First, you should continue to make sure that the church leaders publicly read the scriptures in the meeting of the church. And that practice was carried over from the temple and synagogue worship and was central to the corporate worship of God's people at that time. But that's also why the Bible is central to our times together. Second, exhortation should continue to accompany the reading of the word. You know, exhortations describe the explanation and application of the text that the preacher reads. That's what I'm doing now, right? Explaining the text. 
And third was teaching. Teaching was necessary. And, and teaching through the passages that we've read and how it applies to our lives was what was in mind. And, and there's a view that, that the teaching should encompass instruction in good doctrine as well. Today, we sort of mash it all together rather than have these as defined moments in a service. It sort of all becomes one, but they're present. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that you all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Timothy's encouragement was to continue to use the gifts that God had bestowed upon him, not to shy away from them. You know, Paul reminded Timothy of the charge he'd received, which was a commission from the elders, his ordination, if you like, for the role in leading the church in Ephesus. He was encouraged to keep growing as his life continues to be shaped by the gospel, as he continues to serve the church as a good servant. Timothy was to pay close attention to both his personal life and his public ministry to not grow slack but keep up the good work he'd begun. The rewards would be deliverance for him from failure and a wasted life and the deliverance of those to him to whom he ministered uh, from error and being led astray. You know, a life is never a failure or wasted when shaped by the gospel and lived in servanthood. And two words from this passage today really impacted me as I studied the text. The first is nourish, and the second was immerse. Nourish and immerse. Both of these words are directly connected with the Word of God, and they speak to a depth of biblical knowledge and godly lifestyle born from that intimate relationship with the Word of God. And I know that it might seem a bit basic that through this series so far from 1 Timothy, these are the major themes. The gospel, prayer, godliness, leadership, and now reading the Bible. Seriously, Aaron, did you really want to make such a basic series? Like, you know, these are the basics of Christianity. We've heard about this since we were saved. Like, this is, like, seriously, you know. But these are the basic essentials of Christianity and so if we aren't doing them maybe it's great encouragement and time for us to be reminded to pick up our game to make sure that we are in a healthy relationship with God and let me show you one being nourished by the word of God and immersing yourself in it is so important and then I'll give you some practical skills to help you be nourished by the Word of God and immerse yourself in the Scriptures. But first, why being nourished by the Word of God and immersing yourself in them is so important. See, Christianity is not like a, a religion in the way that the word often is used. See, religion is adhering to a set of rules or works in order to earn God's favour. Christianity, however is all about a relationship with God through Jesus the Son, supernaturally assisted by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, with any relationship, it takes time and effort to grow and develop. When I first met Kelly, and we began our romantic relationship, we spent a lot of time together, and we got to know each other more and more. Over time, that knowledge grew and developed into intimacy. 
And that intimacy formed the foundation for a flourishing, not perfect, but flourishing relationship that has brought us great blessing. There's been some pain, there's been hardship, but in general, flourishing and blessing. Now, if I had to have approached my relationship with Kelly, like some professing Christians approach their relationship with God, I would have come together once a week with some other people to sing about Kelly, to hear her talk for a while about Kelly, then go home. Through that week, I would say a quick word to Kelly before I ate, say a quick word as I fell asleep maybe at least some of the nights, and I'd think about maybe reading the letters she sent me, telling me all about who she is, her character and nature and all the amazing uh, attributes she has, but would never actually find time to read those letters, but I had them there on this bookshelf because I was too busy, I didn't have time to read, you know, the, the time. I, I had other pressing things that needed my attention. Now, how well do you think my relationship with Kelly would have gone if that's how I had have approached it? I certainly don't think we'd be married. So why do we expect something vastly different with our relationship with God when we spend almost zero time with Him? Would you say that your relationship with God is characterized by being nourished by His Word? Uh, as you immerse yourself in it? Now you may have had periods in your life where you have spent a lot of time with God, learning more and more about Him as you read and study the Scriptures, as you immersed yourself in them and were nourished by them. I would hope that each one of us can look at times where that was so fruitful in our life. But then things got busy and we fell out of those really healthy habits that we had and maybe you're just relying now on previous knowledge for your relationship. Well, that would be more like me stopping from talking with Kelly, reducing my interaction back to once a Sunday and then only in a group, distancing myself from her and then expecting everything to still be okay. If we approach our relationship with God like this, then we are the ones that lose out. And we lose out massively. We lose that intimacy and the openness we may have once had with God. That close connection and being responsive to the leading guidance and blessing of the Spirit. See, God hasn't changed, but our approach to Him has. And only we can do something about that. Being nourished by and being immersed in the Scriptures is so important because that's how we develop intimacy with God who has revealed Himself to us and speaks to us through the Scriptures. Now, if I'm making a decision about something for Kelly, let's say buying her a birthday present, and I want to make sure that it's the best decision that I can make for Kelly, the best present possible. It's only by knowing her intimately that I'll make the right choice. It's only as I know her character, her likes and dislikes, her desires, and observe more and more about her, will I get close to making the right choice. And it's pretty much the same if you want to know God's will for us. If you want to know what God thinks about something, or want to make a decision that honours God, how will you know what that will be if you don't know Him intimately? Yet if you read and know His Word well, you will know His character, you will know His desires, you will know His general disposition because you've observed and have a mountain of information to factor into your decision. So now let me share a simple but incredibly effective method 
of studying the Bible to help give you a practical tool to know God more intimately, to be nourished by the Word as you immerse yourself in it. This is the same as what I teach in the Communicating the Hope of the Gospel um, course. And I ran this last year. There we go, Communicating the Hope of the Gospel. And I'm going to be running this again in March. And although I can only give a quick overview today, come to the course for a full explanation and, and for the training. Um, for those that were there at the last one, if you were here in the room, just put your hand up. There was a couple. Uh, Rob and Judy, you were there, and Daniel was there, Anthony was there. Like, it's, it's basic Bible study. Um, if there was one thing that I wished every Christian was equipped with from when I went through Bible college, from everything that I learnt there, it would be Bible study methods, which basically this course is. In those classes, they give students the skills to answer three questions about a Bible passage that you're reading. And those three questions are these. What does it say, which is observation? What does it mean, which is interpretation? And what difference does it make, which is application? So first off, observation. Observation is the basis of all good Bible study. A person's interpretations and applications will always reflect the quality of their observations. You know, time spent observing what the text actually says will greatly reduce the time and energy you have to spend uh, trying to determine what the text means. Good observation will inevitably lead to more accurate interpretations and better, more valid applications. So what do we observe? Well, we look at all the terms used, all of the words which ones stand out as being important. We look at the structure and how the passage is put together. We look at the grammar of the words and the literary structure and the type of literature. We look at the atmosphere that's set by the passage and most importantly, we look at the context, what came before and after. And context is king. The more context you have, in other words, the more words you have, the better job you can do at interpreting, interpreting the verse. Now let me give you an example. A Christmas card had this greeting inside which said, They exchanged gifts and made merry from Revelation chapter 11. Now, it's very different in the actual context. Uh, if, if you look at Revelation chapter 11 verse 10, it's a very different context than what the greeting card was actually trying to uh, 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 portray. But the fam most famously misused out-of-context verse in Christendom, I think, is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We've all heard that verse, right? How many of you claimed it for yourself, right? But actually, although it's an uplifting verse and it does reveal a lot about God's character and nature... So many people do claim it for themselves, but the context clearly shows it was a specific blessing for the nation of Israel. It reveals God's character and will, but it wasn't written for you personally. It was written for the nation of Israel. So what's the first step of good Bible study? Observation. Answering the question, what does it say? Second step of good Bible study is interpretation. What does it mean? Now, the quality of your interpretation depends on the quality of your observation. 
and many different interpretations can be found for any given passage of Scripture, but I believe that there is only ever one correct interpretation. There's only one, ever one proper one interpretation, one meaning, and that is the meaning it had to the original writer. So now the postmodern interpretation method tends to emphasise the priority of the reader over the author. And that view says that what is most important is not what the text brings to the reader, but what the reader brings to the text. And the argument of this approach to the scriptures is that because of the historical and cultural gaps separating the author and us readers, the author's original meaning is unattainable or irrelevant. And so whatever it means to you, as you read it, well, that's the truth. But I see error in that because it's actually a very radical view of interpretation. Now, I, I know that there's difficulties involved in determining the original meaning of the text and that our own pre-understandings colour the way we read texts. We all come to it with our own knowledge and our own you know, thought structures. But we still strive to determine the original message that the human and divine authors intended to communicate. So that method is called the historical grammatical literary method. And we look at the history and the circumstances surrounding the human author and the original audience. We look at the gr grammar and the literary features, the genres and the devices used by that author, particularly to do with the time and culture that they were in and what structures they used and how to communicate. So they didn't have like a bold or an underline or an exclamation mark. So in, for one example, when you see something repeated at the start and at the end, that's basically saying everything between these two statements, which are the same, is all about this one subject. And when you see it repeated, 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 that's how it was emphasised, was by repetition. Because it didn't have bold, italics, underlined, right, like we have today. Right? So it's understanding all that, and you take it into the passage, look at the grammar, the genres, devices, and the Bible was written to specific people living in specific places at specific times in response to a specific situation and need. And God spoke in order to be understood by them, not to confuse them. So before that we can figure out what the Bible means to us today, we must determine what it meant to the people it was originally addressed to. And so we have to bridge the chasm between the biblical world and our world through time, place, culture and language and we do that through a few merit methods one is content you know that observation the raw material you uncover there's also context looking at the literary structure of a verse the paragraph it's part of the section that paragraph is part of the book that that section is part of and the ultimately the context of the entire bible really we do it also through comparison you know some scripture ultimately uh, oh, oh, sorry since Scripture ultimately only has one author, and that author is God himself, everything in Scripture fits together and is consistent with the whole counsel of Scripture. We also consult. And so I don't know that much about first century um, uh, Greco-Roman world, but there are historical scholars who have done a lot of work in that area and can give you a lot of information. So that's where we consult those sort of outside sources, sources from outside the Bible, secondary sources, so that we understand the world that it was written into. 
and the world that the human author wrote it and his original in, uh, author and how they differ from ours. And those sources might include a concordance, a Bible dictionary, a Bible encyclopedia, Bible atlases and commentaries. And that's the part for me that I spend the most time on when I'm studying the Bible so that my interpretations are the best that they can possibly be, the closest to what Timothy would have understood when he read the letter from Paul for the first time sitting at the kitchen table in Ephesus, for example. You know, trying to put myself in Timothy's shoes. How would I receive this letter? So the first step of good Bible says observation. What does it say? Second is interpretation, what does it mean? And the final step of good Bible study is application, which answers the question, what difference does it make? It's the goal of Bible study, where we basically ask the question, so what? So, so what difference does this make to me? You know, meaning is the immediate goal of step two, interpretation. However, significance is found in application taking what could be mere knowledge one step further. And this is where we do what's often called biblical theology. Essentially asking and answering three questions of our text is what do we learn about God, what do we learn about man, and what do we learn about the relationship between God and man. And from that theology, from the passage, we then find principles that can be turned into applications. So a principle is a broad, general truth. It's like finding God's timeless message from that passage. But then we need to take that principle one step further and apply that principle to our time and our place and our context. So when you're reading the Bible, when you've observed everything you can, when you've interpreted the meaning of the passage as the original authors intended, when you've discovered the timeless principles to apply that you might then answer one of these questions. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? That's sort of how you, we sort of work through how to apply the scriptures to our lives. So the first step is observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what difference does it make? And if you follow those three steps with a little bit of extra maybe training, if you want to come along to the session, you will grow deeply in your knowledge of God's character and will as you get to know him more intimately and are nourished by his word as you immerse yourself in the scriptures, which is my application today. If you want to learn more about the process um, on how to communicate the gospel and the truths of the scriptures, then come along to the course. It's on March 16th, Thursday, March 16th, 7.30pm in the evening. And may your life be shaped more and more by the gospel as you immerse yourself in God's word and serve him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us your word, which is perfectly uh, given to us to, to be trained in and to, to know you more. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would develop a, the, the, that deep desire and that intimate relationship with you through your word, 
that, Lord, we would be nourished by your word and as we immerse ourselves in your word. Lord, that is the, the source of strength for each one of us as we seek to serve you. Only as we are fulfilled by, by, by that relationship with you are we able to serve others with a whole heart and with a, with a heart that has the right motives behind it because, Lord, we want to honour you first, want to glorify you first, and then we can bring hope to other people. Lord, I pray that you would, would uh, instil that, that passion deep within us to be immersed in your scriptures so that we can serve you and serve others well. Lord, guide us, I pray. Help us to, to know you more intimately. Develop that intimacy. Lord, where we've had wonderful, healthy habits in the past, Lord, may you help us reinstill those again for today and what will work for us now. And Lord, if we've never developed those healthy spiritual habits of, of immersing ourselves and being nourished in your word, Lord, help us develop those now. Lord, help us grow in our understanding and knowledge of you, of your will, of your character, of your nature. And may that inspire us as we spend time in your word, as we're encouraged in your word. Lord, help us. And may we, small groups might be a part of that, where we can meet with other people and together be nourished by your word. Lord, if that's something that would be great uh, for, for us, then Lord, Help us take that step outside of our comfort zones and, 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 and say, yes, I'd like to be involved in a small group. Where can I get involved? Lord, we thank you that you lead us and guide us and that you provide everything for us that we need to flourish as Christians as we seek to live lives shaped by the gospel as your servants. Amen.